It is Wednesday, April the 3rd, 2019. You are listening to the EdTech Situation Room, episode 129, and I guess I should say happening now. Man, it's been a while, and I just feel like kind of a bumbling fool trying to learn the new ways of the YouTube Creator Studio. But my name is Wes Fryer, and I am here in Oklahoma City, where we have some threats of severe weather, but it's actually been quite temperate and mild, and I'm being joined, as always, by Dr. Jason Neifer, but not on Mountain Time, joining me in Central Time, I think, down in the land of Austin, Texas. Jason, good evening. Welcome. And what is the occasion for your visit to the Lone Star State? Good evening, Dr. Fryer. Indeed, I am joining from lovely Austin, Texas tonight, where I have been a participant in the first annual Digital Learning Annual Conference, which is a project of the Digital Learning Collaborative. In fact, I'm going to share a little information shared by the Digital Learning Collaborative today. Uh, this is the first annual conference that uh, is the brainchild of John Watson of the Evergreen Education Group, and um, it is a conference aimed at uh, distance learning, blended learning environments, and I have to say I've had an amazing time here in Austin. Not only is Austin an amazing city, I've been here three or four times now, a couple times professionally, and then I have some family in the region as well, but... Um, it was just a really uh, awesome experience. 500 uh, educators from uh, across the United States and four other countries. Um, a lot of Virtual Learning Leadership Alliance folks were here. I gave a couple of great presentations, had wonderful audience reaction, and I'm pretty thrilled uh, with the conference this year. And they announced at the end today that they're already starting plans for next year's digital learning uh, annual conference. So I'm really excited to have an opportunity to join my colleagues in distance learning, digital distance learning from really around the world. And let me let me ask you a question about that before we go to, to sure. articles and all that kind of stuff. Uh, what what would you say is something that you have as an opinion or see as a trend in the arena of distance learning and blended learning that you might not have if you weren't working, you know, as you are at a, at a virtual academy and, and working so intensely with both students and teachers in the distance environment? Sure. Uh, one of the things that I've learned a lot, and, and I should say that uh, I am coming up on my 10-year anniversary working for the Montana Digital Academy, and I think I've mentioned this um, in past episodes of the podcast, but I was recruited to take the curriculum director's job there um, in 2010, January 2010, and it's actually something that initially I, I um, you know, really turned down. I wasn't necessarily interested in leaving the classroom. The job sounded exciting. I had been part of some previous efforts in distance learning programming in the state of Montana, but I really, really liked being a classroom teacher. I left uh, uh, the classroom, um, obviously willingly, because it was my call, but I I, there's not a day that goes by I don't miss teaching high school history, and it's just something that really spoke to me, and I felt like used a, a lot of my tool sets um, all at once. But um, I've learned a lot of things in the last 10 years, uh, you know, some, you know, obviously things related to being an administrator and talking to parents and students and taking on a different role than I would as a classroom teacher. But I think when it comes to distance learning, it's something that I actually spoke um, a little bit about this week in context of the conference is how different the teaching events are in a distance learning environment than they are in a face-to-face -face environment. And something I've, I've noticed in our program, it's also true when I talk to other state virtual schools, which is the model of the Montana Digital Academy. We're not a charter school. We're not a full-time school. We're a state supplemental virtual school. Um, other programs like ours include the Idaho Digital Learning Academy or IDLA, um, the Michigan Virtual School, the North Carolina Public uh, Virtual School, um, South Carolina has a program like ours, uh, Virginia has a program like ours, and uh, one thing I know from my colleagues there is that uh, distance learning teaching rewards a different skill set than face-to-face -face teaching, and it's not unlike some of the struggles um, you know, that I faced in transitioning to becoming a digital teacher, as I'm sure anyone that's that's heard me speak, especially live before, listen to us on the podcast, I like lecturing and I like running discussions. I like providing a lot of student to teacher, student to student interaction in the classroom. I'm a very dynamic speaker. I like putting together events and I like the performance art of teaching. And almost none of that is rewarded in a distance learning environment. And so part of what um, you know, we've really taken to heart at MTDA is helping teachers that 
you know, are used to being awesome teachers because they have such an amazing presence in the classroom and saying that you're not going to be able to really recreate that in a meaningful way in an online environment, especially if you're an asynchronous program like ours. So we work really hard to make sure communications are productive and effective. Um, we, we think a lot about things like how can teachers best state instructions in order to have students uh, engage in learning environments and not get distracted by everything that is introduced with a largely digital environment. Um, and also, you know, how can we empower students to take the knowledge that is part of a formal curriculum and encourage them to take the knowledge to obviously where we need them to, to justify the awarding of credit, but then where, where can we take that further? How can we inspire students to take topics that we're interested in or they're interested in based on our courses and then you know, be set up for uh, informal learning after the formal learning environment is done? And what I love about talking about my colleagues from other state virtual schools, and I've also mentioned in the past that Montana is a member of the Virtual Learning Leadership Alliance, or VLLA, um, and it's an organization I've served in a leadership role in. I was the curriculum director, um, committee chair for a number of years, and uh, I just love talking to my colleagues from other state virtual schools because of all the really great things they're doing to work hard to make distance learning environments the best they can be to serve kids. And, um, you know, I, um, I I have strong opinions about, you know, whether or not distance learning is, quote unquote, as good as face to face or not. The, the frank answer is, is that uh, people that will state that the face to face classroom is better than the online classroom, I think, are making broad stroke assumptions that, that have uh, very little to do with the reality of the day-to-day -day classroom and the students that we see in our online program. In a lot of cases, we're the only option for a student to take a unique elective or for a student to access uh, formal school education while they're in a medical situation or in a personal situation. And I think that gives uh, me personally a mission to make sure that our courses are the best they can be and utilize all the best we know about learning and uh, the delivery of learning in a distance learning environment. So um, wonderful to have an opportunity to, to, to meet with my colleagues from across the United States. Uh, wonderful conversations this week. I am utterly exhausted. It's not just because I've eaten very meaty meals uh, uh, as part of uh, Texas barbecue in the last uh, 72 hours, but also because I, I really you know, take advantage of the engagement that the uh, DLEC conference has provided. Awesome. Well, when you get an answer that comprehensive from one of us, you know that <clears throat> that has gotten to the heart of uh, some passion and, yeah, center of the wheelhouse. So that that is outstanding. Well, uh, we do want to apologize for the late start. We want to give a shout out to Peggy George, who's joining us as we're uh, a little bit offset on our time. We are going to be talking about the week's uh, educational technology news and technology news through an educational lens. We want to direct everyone to edtechsr.com slash links, where you will find a Google Doc embedded that has a lot of links, and as I have been accustomed to, actually, you know, Jason's just picking up the slack for me because he's he's built our links, and I've only dropped a couple things in. But you'll see the links that we'll discuss, as well as some that we will not, as well as Geeks of the Week, and those are also available on our website, edtechsr.com, where you may be listening to this asynchronously. So I think uh, I think I might actually uh, jump in um, with uh, with a quick security article. I know we're going to talk Google for sure because there's some real exciting uh, Google news. Um, but I, I had an opportunity to, we talk a lot about security on the show. And um, I watched a 60 Minutes episode that I had um, read about, I think in my Flipboard feed. I, I have a Twitter list of different security experts. And, and so oftentimes I'm finding things that way. The article is from a Canadian... Uh, organization called Citizen Lab from April the 1st. So this is two days ago. And it's titled Dubious Denials and Scripted Spin. Spyware Company NSO Group Goes on 60 Minutes. And so some of the intersections, what we've talked about before, you know, hackers and folks who want to um, be able to capture information for different reasons. Oftentimes that is for financial gain. But in some cases, it is to, you know, directly target individuals. And we have security agencies in the world who are operating. And so this company called the NSO Group has been in the news because when the San Bernardino uh, shooter had an iPhone and the U.S. government, you know, told Apple, hey, you need to, you know, get us to, to you know, uh, get around this encryption, um, they, they, Apple said no. 
And <clears throat> that didn't please the government, but they found a, quote, Israeli company that was able to do that. And who that was was the NSO group. Well, in more recent days, the last, what, few months, uh, Jamal Jamal Khashoggi was um, a Saudi-born journalist that uh, was working for the New York Times. And um, the allegation is that this software, which is called Pegasus, we've mentioned it before, um, and this is this is a real weaponized uh, tool, which the company claims, and, and they actually go on the record with 60 Minutes in this episode, that, you know, it saved tens of thousands of lives. But the uh, allegation by Citizen Lab is that, yeah, it's also been used by governments like Mexico and uh, Saudi Arabia and other countries uh, to target journalists and political opponents um, and in some cases, uh, you know, to um, there's been harm that's, that's resulted. So um, in that video episode, in this article from Citizen Lab, I'll, I'll drop the link to the actual 60 Minutes episode. I watched it on on Apple TV. If you've got the CBS News app, you can actually just, you know, watch the archived uh, video there or you can watch it online. Um, it shows a phishing email, which was an example. And <clears throat> there's another journalist, and I'm not going to get his name exactly right, uh, who's, I think, from the, the United Arab Emirates, um, in some cases, sending you messages saying, hey, your, uh, you know, your FedEx package, your UPS DHL package has arrived, you know, click here to verify. And literally, with one click, if you if you uh, end up clicking this link, your entire iPhone is completely compromised to where they can surreptitiously turn on the, the microphone turn on the camera, have access to every bit of information that you've uh, put in there, all of your apps, everything. So, you know what? Most of us are not going to be targeted by Pegasus. So I guess my question to you, Jason, is, um, is this something people should be concerned and worried about uh, on a, you know, in a, in a personal way that this kind of thing is possible? How do you hear this kind of uh, thing in terms of, hey, this capability exists and, and the Israelis are selling it? Um, is it something that gets to the personal level of personal security or organizational security, or is this just kind of something interesting we listen to and say, wow, that's, that's happening at, at a nation state level, but it really doesn't affect me. Well, I, I think part of, part of the way we need to respond to this is making sure that, um, we are diligent about asking people we buy stuff from to lock down these devices appropriately. And I got to say, I would say that Apple is really ahead of the game in comparison to other platforms when it comes to really locking things down securely. But when I hear that information about uh, um, how that particular phone was compromised and, and how simple that process is, and I guarantee I've clicked on it, I'd be willing to bet that Wes has clicked on notifications before saying you have a package coming, click here to track. And that's just a normal course of business. And I would say that, that you and I are, are fairly careful users, right? Like, I, I think it would be difficult, though not impossible, to you know, do a phishing attack for us. And I hear that out loud, and I'm pretty sure I've clicked on my share of links that say exactly those types of things without uh, batting an eye before assuming that they were safe or assuming that it had no um, real issue for me to do so. I do think that there we, we need to be broadly concerned from the standpoint of we have to demand of our vendors that um, that when holes like this are discovered, that they are patched immediately and aggressively so that we don't face these types of threats. And part of it is that I have no doubt that Really, it's not a, an immediate threat for the vast majority of users, but if we don't demand more secure devices to vendors, then these types of, of, of vulnerabilities have become more and more and more, um, uh, well, I guess, lower level to the point of which it could be cost a dollar to buy a threat like this. I think your microphone may have, was that in your other ear or was the mic, something happened with your connection there. Ah. Hi, is that better? You're, you're back. Yeah. Okay. Wow. That's, uh, I didn't even know it was coming through that mic. So, um, the, you know, if, if we don't, if we're not careful, right? And if we're not diligent about pushing people we buy hardware and software from to make sure that the, that they are extremely proactive about patching uh, these devices and they become real with holes, it's not going to cost what I'm assuming is an extraordinary amount from an Israeli security company to, to then hack an, a phone. It's going to be something you buy for a dollar on the dark web and, it's it's easy and, and suddenly now it's not and I, I don't want to introduce too much FUD fear uncertainty doubt into our conversation but you could see a tech savvy Ute right so, uh, 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 someone that's trying to bully someone else if something is becomes ubiquitous and commoditized 
that they would then start buying hacks to troll their friends. And, um, you know, I, um, you know, I, I don't think that's a, a, an immediate threat, but I think the long term is we have to be extremely careful about that. We've mentioned it before, but one last point on this. Um, I'm going to, I put in the, the link to the actual video, uh, on CBS News 60 Minutes. This is from March 24th. CEO of Israeli spyware maker NSO on fighting terror Khashoggi merger and Saudi Arabia. Um, I'm going to put the link into a website we've mentioned before called Have I Been Pwned? If that's how you say it or, or pawned, I think it's pwned actually. And, uh, basically you just put your email into this website. And this is something that I continue to use with our teachers as we talk about password managers and multi-factor or two, which multi-factor authentication, two-step verification, uh, and the importance of turning those kinds of things on. So really practical, I think, to, um, recognize this, that the security environment is, uh, quite hostile and we want to be careful on the things that we click on. And um, even though we're likely to not be the target of a tool like that, as tools are, you know, released, to Jason's point, we want to be patching our devices, running current software. Um, and then we also, you know, want to possibly consider uh, just doing a wipe or a, or a clean refresh, a clean install um, yep. on our mobile devices as well as, I think, in our smartphones, as well as, you know, laptops, desktops. So what right. else would you like to talk about tonight, Dr. Neifer? Yep. You have a, a plethora of links to choose I from. I do. I have another security-related article that's related to that. And, and Wes, now that I think about it, I think it'd be a great idea since you and I like to talk about special episodes that we don't actually produce. <laughs> um, here's a great one. We should talk about security one night and not from the standpoint of the kind of the doom, but... You and I are both, I wouldn't say we're obsessive about it, but I think you and I are both very careful users, right? We're thoughtful about the way we implement hardware and software. We should just both nod and pretend that we are to give people hope. But I'd say both you and I, um, you know, recognize that there are basic steps you can take. But I was really um, stunned. I don't know if that's the right word. I was taken aback by this article from ZDNet on March 25th, uh, 2000, uh, uh, 2019. And um, there was an extensive academic study, according to uh, Caitlin uh, Kipino for Zero Day on ZDNet, saying that the practice of carriers adding our carriers and handset makers adding apps that can't be uninstalled to Android devices has become an absolute security nightmare and mess because a lot of those apps themselves are kind of gross because many of them are data harvesting and malware laced uh, apps that are there for a reason, right? They're kind of there to track you or there to sell your data or they don't get updated very often. And I think this is a real issue in the Android architecture, the number one phone platform on earth, uh, because a lot of, of, of devices just aren't getting updated um, beyond two years. And the cheaper the device, so in other words, the more mass appeal the device, the less likely it is those apps are getting updated. And um, I've mentioned this in the past because uh, uh, that I utilize, this is my LG V20. It's an LG phone that was released in 2017. I like this phone a lot. It's a really... Um, really, uh, uh, actually, it's a 2016 phone. I'm sorry. It's a beautiful phone. Uh, the reason why I like this particular phone is because um, it, it has a user-replaceable battery, which is just not a phenomenon that you see in many, um, I think, any modern phones anymore. That's The last one that had user-replaceable battery was out two years ago. And um, I like to mention this, that uh, this is the phone. This is about how thin it is when I have it regularly, and then I add this big battery pack to it, and it has a full 36 hours of battery even with heavy use. I mention this because this phone um, is is due to stop getting security updates in the next six months, even though it is a beautifully functional phone with a big, bright screen and a super fast processor and a lot of RAM and storage space. And I have it exactly where I want it. I love this phone. It's really, really, really a great phone. And... I'm finding that that for security purposes, I may have to update to a phone that I don't really want, right? It's a little different in Apple because Apple supports stuff a lot longer than the Android universe does. But I think what you're mentioning, Wes, about phones having security holes in them, if they're coming with pieces of, of pre-installed malware that are there to make the device cheaper because they're selling your data or applications like Facebook, Facebook comes pre-installed on a ton of phones now and you can't uninstall it even though Facebook is notorious. Really? So like, oh, yeah. internet, like the Internet Explorer of old, there's no escaping Facebook on some phones? On some phones, yeah. Some phones have, uh, I've, I've had uh, HTC phones with Facebook pre-installed. I have... Uh, used super cheap, you know, $25 throwaway phones. 
um, that had Facebook pre-installed that helps take down the price of the app. And there's some question whether those those apps will track you even if you're not if you're not signed into an account. And so I just mention it because I, I you know, like. I, I don't want people to give up because there's nothing you can do about it, but there's a lot of ways that I think the industry is not helping us out on security and privacy. And there are a ton of indicators that we're starting to take this more seriously, but we do need, um, we do need to be very thoughtful about the fact that uh, it's probably an uphill battle and probably a battle worth waging. Awesome. All right. Uh, let's talk a little bit of Google. Uh, let's see. I think I dropped one Google article in. Uh, this is Lifehacker on March 27th. Google's canned responses feature is finally good. Uh, I actually set this up. So this has been something in a, in a Google lab, I think, that you had to enable. Uh, but now it's just built in and, um, a canned response is just something that you're going to have to send a lot. So I'm thinking maybe you use some other keyboard shortcut tools or something to do that. I know some people really swear by, you know, certain, uh, utilities that'll help with that, but I'm finding myself, uh, I certainly was last week. We had a, just kind of a terrible week for, uh, cyber attack and fraud and, um, you know, just kind of some crazy stuff, um, targeted stuff that wasn't just like, Hey, I'm in Nigeria, you know, send me money. Anyway, I end, ended up, you know, replying with the same kind of blurb to many faculty and staff, which is saying, you know, thank you for letting me know. Please make sure you report this as phishing. Um, I've actually found it nice. There's some uh, animated gifts that you can get that'll embed right into your email that show you the steps of doing that. So anyway, I, I use that and I'm glad to see that is now not just a, an add-on, but uh, there were some other exciting announcements from Google. Do you want to take us down any of those, Jason? Sure. Well, first, uh, I'd like to wish a hearty happy birthday to Gmail, which turned 15 on uh, Monday, April 1st. And um, it makes me a little wispy because uh, I, I was a Gmail user from the first moment it was available to me. For those of you that are old school Google users, you probably uh, remember that Gmail was not universally available. It was in, in beta for several years and they rolled it out very slowly. You had to have an invite to Gmail and then uh, once you used it for a couple of weeks, you were given five invites to share with friends. And so a shout out for, to an old friend of mine, Greg Fisher, who I think at that point was working for Intel, who gave me my um, uh, gave me my Gmail invite. And I never looked back. I've had the same Gmail address for actually probably goes back 15 years, this or next month. And it's been just an amazing journey because I think you know, Gmail reinvented email, right? The notion that you uh, were searching instead of uh, sorting, which was a big feature in the early Gmail days. The fact that they offered initially unlimited storage, it was limited storage, but it kept going up over time. They had a counter that said the amount of storage they offered available to you. Now it's it's a, a large amount of storage. I think they wrap that into 15 gigs, which for most people it will store decades and decades of email. Um, I will say for the record, because uh, it's funny to mention this, I am now using a terabyte of space at work for <laughs> archived emails. It's that that much email um, over at the, the the state virtual school in Montana. But um, the the thing I, I wanted to mention about that is that in, in a lot of ways, the platform reinventing email became the mark for other platforms. So you see elements of, of Gmail's design in Yahoo Mail. You see elements of Gmail's design in the modern Outlook. Um, in fact, um, I use uh, a couple of Microsoft uh, email boxes now for some, some other work I do outside my day job, including the work I do with NCCE. And uh, Outlook email, Outlook 365 email, is infinitely more functional than it was just a few years back, and they borrow a lot from that, that design precept. So happy birthday, Gmail. We love you. Um, you know, the world is better because you were born. So that said, uh, there was a few other um, uh, features released this week. And, and Wes mentioned one of them, that they have expanded out and reconfigured the canned responses, which is a wonderful strategy, by the way. If you are a teacher or an administrator that answers a lot of similar emails during the day, uh, uh, Dr. Fryer is correct. I use text expansion for this. Uh, I've moved a little bit beyond the canned responses, but I also pay for a service that, that, that's a premier there. If I didn't, canned responses would be great. And I'll give you an example of this. Um, I, because I answer so much email, um, I oftentimes, you know, uh, repeat the same things over and over again. And those things I repeat are oftentimes the niceties that come with email. And so if I type in point TN with my text expander, it puts in all the phrases that I would use to respond to a support ticket. 
um, which are common, about 15 or 20 of them. If I type in dot uh, PN, it's dot parent nice. It's the types of things I would want to add to a parent email so that they know that they are heard and that I, beyond the specific uh, parts of their concerns, I want to let them know that I'm thinking about their, their, their pieces and the same with students as well. But canned responses are great. Um, the other new feature that's being uh, rolled out this week is the um, uh, uh, much requested feature that relates to Smart Compose. Um, and between Smart Compose and email scheduling, um, they're starting to add a lot of AI to, to email. And now um, Smart Scheduling is actually an enhancement that they've released an earlier version of uh, a couple of months back. It basically tries to use AI to determine if it looks like if the context of your email is something you should follow up on, right? Like if you emailed someone and it sounded like you were looking for a response, it will kick the email back up to you after a couple of days and say, did you did you wanna follow up on this? I have this turned on at work and it's pretty great. Smart Compose allows you to send an email at a later date. So compose an email and say, send this at, you know, 7.45 Monday morning. This is particularly great for folks that, that like to work late and don't want to send a bunch of kind of awkward emails in the middle of the night and obligate people to feel like they need to answer your emails. Um, I used to be more of a late night person when I first started my current job uh, nine years ago. I'm not as much anymore, but um, I used another third party service called Boomerang for this. But if I were up in the middle of the night and... Um, you know, was sending out, you're shooting out a bunch of emails. I did feel bad about that because I didn't want people to feel like they needed to be up at 2.30 in the morning to grab, you know, whatever, uh, you know, brilliant thing I'm rambling on and, and at 2.30 in the morning in email, I would just have them show up at 8.01 um, on, on the next morning. So that's a great feature. And then you can also kind of snooze something. You could say, I don't want to deal with this email right now. You click on a button and it will come back when you tell it to. So you know, if it's a webinar you may want to attend on, um, you know, uh, August 19th, you could say at, at 3 p.m., you could say at 2.30 on August 19th, return this email to me so that if my day allows for it, I could jump in on, on a webinar. So great features. And I'm glad to see that uh, that they're pretty regularly releasing more and more great features for Gmail. And it's got that same spirit as the Gmail of 2004. Absolutely. I did a little research, too, on the uh, basically Boomerang, which has been a paid subscription feature um, as of April 15th. That will be available to, it sounds like, all G Suite and Gmail users. And there's not any intervention required on the part of the G Suite administrator in your organization, which yep. is me today. So that is great news. And I know we've got lots of uh, folks excited about that. And um, it is important to recognize from a wellness standpoint, you know, because not, not that everybody is sitting there. I, in fact, sometimes it's, it's unfortunate because I, I have email, I receive emails sometimes from people who do think I'm, you know, just sitting with my phone right here with bated breath 24 hours a day, you know, waiting to listen to it or waiting to, you know, receive it and, and reply. And sometimes I'm able to, but anyway, that is a good thing. Uh, and it's a, a good thing from a wellness standpoint as well. Uh, let's see. I'm trying to see if there's anything else on the, on the Google side. Yeah. There's one other thing I want to mention. Um, I shout out to Simon Miller, the tech director in, um, Kellogg, Idaho, um, or as he likes to call it, fabulous upstate Idaho. Um, shout out to, to Simon, uh, great, uh, good friend, great tech director, uh, great Google buddy out there. And he posted a, a conversation the other day talking about the kind of death of Google products. And in the last couple of weeks, Google has either announced or put shutdown dates on a couple of wonderful um, tools that just didn't take off or did take off and Google's decided to go in another direction. And among those, Google Plus is now officially dead. This has been a long time coming. We talked about it in the past in the podcast. Google Inbox, which was a kind of an advanced uh, Google layover to Gmail that had a lot of, of kind of management features that allowed you to kind of see email differently. Uh, many of those features have been rolled into core Gmail. So the inbox product in some ways had been, um, I guess, for lack of a better term, um, uh, 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 made irrelevant with the new stuff. So inbox wasn't as, as necessary. 
But there is uh, some debate about whether or not uh, Google's insistence to kill things that they don't feel like have a strategic future with them is actually hurting the product. And um, there's a great article from Ars Technica, Ron Amartio at Ars Technica uh, uh, from yesterday's edition talks about how the, the brand is damaged by this kind of constant product shutdown where Google decides to go in another direction. We've recently reported on the podcast as an example that Google has uh, kind of minimized its staffing in its hardware department. And so there's some suspicion and uh, there's some disagreement about whether what this means because there's been no really official announcements here. But the folks that are making the Pixelbook, the Pixel phones, uh, those departments are apparently not um, not as 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 many as they were, you know, just a few months back, and they're starting to kind of scale down those departments a little bit. And um, the Armadio article would argue that that's hurting Google's brand ultimately because there's just no product you can really rely on because it seems like many of even popular products go away. And I'm gonna go ahead and guess, and Wes, I'd like to hear your thoughts about this because I know this impacted this it impacted you, but. Um, probably the most famous one for the kind of tech savvy nerd set that, that I knew was um, the uh, uh, getting rid of Google Reader several years back. The RSS Reader, which I think, to be quite frank, would still be a very relevant product in 2019. And for better or for worse, um, I've changed the way that I, I interact with information because of the lack of Google Reader, even though there are RSS Reader alternatives available. But that's a product that people still talk about because people just don't understand why, um, you know, that product had to go away. And I'm guessing you, sir, are also missing that product. Absolutely. Uh, I'm trying to think of what I have as a replacement because I don't open it that often, right? I use yeah. uh, basically Flipboard instead. Yep. And, uh, yeah, Feedly is the, the one. And I, I, I imported all my, my feeds from Google Reader in there. You know, grandfathered in as far as not having to to pay, et cetera. But yeah, it is a it's a sad thing. Now, a couple of clarifications um, on the Google Plus. If your community was created inside a, a G Suite domain uh, for education, it can live on. So we've got one that we call Casty Learning for our school, and so that one's not going to go away. I do need to check in with the uh, the Giuseppe admins, you know, Google Plus account. Um, that's the Google. Um, you know, G, G Suite for Education, um, users group for, for admins, fantastic podcast. I haven't listened to that in a little while. I think they, have, they had over 5,000, you know, users and it was just a great place to be able to post a question. Uh, Scott Summer, shout out to him in our chat room, points out that if you're on the, um, uh, rapid, uh, what's it called? Um, rapid release for, uh, new G Suite features, then you might see uh, like the schedule email sooner. I think it was, I think I saw that it was April 15th that just, you know, regular G Suite folks were going to see that. Um, and then on a comment about links, uh, Peggy and, uh, Peggy's dropped a good link, which I'll put into the show notes from VentureBeat, which was Google's April Fool's Day 2019 jokes. I was amazed they announced legitimate products on April Fool's Day, right? Because usually that's when they announce, you know, Google, what was it, uh, Google, uh, for for animals, what was that? When, oh, when it was yeah, in, interpret the animals, you know, the pigs Although and the ducks talking. Although Gmail on 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 April Fool's Day. That's it's weird, and maybe introduced Drive on that day as well. That's weird. Well, yeah, maybe that was why, since it was the birthday, I guess they were they were announcing new ones. Um, anyway, the, our live chat, which if you end up joining us live at any time, you can feel free to to chime in. Um, before you had to designate somebody a moderator now like scott dropped in a link and it and it just popped up show or hide and i was able to just click uh show and there it is it it, it popped up there so anyway i i guess you know we're going to have to accept the good with the bad i mean google is giving us a lot of free things of course they're monetizing our data and we're sacrificing privacy but you know as we've as we've talked about on the show it also um feels like Google has been a lot more forthright and less deceptive and duplicitous and, and whatever you want to say about, you know, the ways in which they are utilizing our information and giving us choices um, about using that. And of course, to be clear with G Suite for Education, they are not monetizing data from students and they're very, you know, diligent about the ways in which um, 
you know, information from minors is protected, et cetera. But right. I know you, you put in as a breaking news, I think, article at the top, this uh, Washington Post on March 30th, Mark Zuckerberg, the, the Internet needs new rules. Let's start in these four areas. Did Zuck succeed in winning your heart and your mind, Jason? And are you now ready to just recognize that he said, I'm sorry, you know, for the 300th time. Right. And we can believe him this time because he's, he's really sincere and he's a good guy. And, and Facebook's going to be all about privacy now. Is that, is that where we're at? Well, maybe after reading this, I could have been convinced, but then of course today there was an announcement that apparently Google had left a bunch of unsecured data on some uh, Amazon cloud servers that Amazon or Google did or Facebook. Uh, I'm sorry. Facebook left some. Yeah, that, that was weird. Um, Facebook left some data on some unsecured Amazon cloud servers that was apparently accessed by nefarious third parties. So, you know, it's it's a it's a kind of a mixed bag. And especially since that part of what I've always kind of found interesting about the Zuckerberg um, uh, uh, myth is that um, or maybe Zuckerberg myth and legend is that, you know, they that they took security seriously. Right. Maybe not privacy, but security was something they were super serious about, hired the best security folks on Earth and to find out that they left a bunch of data on uh, AWS servers that was uh, basically left there out in the open was not good. But, um, you know, I, I, I encourage you to read the article from Zuckerberg in The Washington Post. Um, uh, the Amazon um, uh, owned Washington Post, right? That I, I think it's 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 worth having some 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 uh, conversations about this. Um, he talks about the need for a global fl- framework for privacy and security and data protection. He talks about the need for uh, protecting elections through legislation. He talks about the need to regulate the internet. Um, and of course, this is an extremely smart move. Uh, a savvy move on the part of Mr. Zuckerberg and in the Facebook crowd because, um, you know, this is coming, right? And if Silicon Valley can can nudge this in, in the right direction, we might be able to get things that don't just straight up break the things we like about social networking and the internet. And of course, you know, um, uh, there's been a number of interpretive uh, articles. Uh, there was one from yesterday's Verge. That, that talks a, a little bit about this, um, and and Casey Newton argues that um, uh, that if Facebook can get ahead of this from a regulatory standpoint, it actually gives them a competitive advantage uh, because if if you know, they can can spell out some of the terms of regulation that do effectively uh, uh, protect privacy while at the same time allowing Facebook to continue to be competitive in that field, they would scare off other competitors from coming into the space. I'm not convinced yet that we we don't need to do more in this space. I'm just not entirely sure what more we can do that would be meaningful um, uh, without crafty re- re- legislation, right? Like I, the, my biggest fear here, and I think we've talked about this in the past in the podcast, is that if we if we do this wrong, we're going to break everything that's great about the internet, right? Oh, Europe's already on the road for that, so that's might be even happening no matter what we do. Well, yeah, true. And, you know, and the other thing that that is also a, a little bit uh, terrifying is that, um, you know, and I think this is particularly true about ed tech is that there's a lot of movement around um, uh, privacy laws. Uh, Montana um, is debating right now an implementation of SOPIPA, which I'm not sure if you've heard of SOPIPA before, but that's a California based uh, law that was enacted a couple of years ago. And it, it adds in specific penalties, and the ability to um, uh, 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 sue, I think, uh, co- companies that sell student data. And, and I, and I think we do need to, to regulate and we do need to legislate based on this. But, um, I don't, I don't know what the answer is to make sure that the, that the legislation allows enough freedom to continue to innovate in this space and understand that, that when things work together, when, um, tools work together, they are better than when they are in separate silos. And, let me offer a starting point is electing officials at both a local and a federal level who are tech savvy, yeah, right? Absolutely. Because the, the the day of like, I don't understand, I'm not a user, I don't know. I mean, some of those questions that you hear legislators in Washington, you know, asking, and obviously some of it's grandstanding, but, you know, Sundar Pichai got asked some really silly questions that just, you know, demonstrated how little, not only the legislator, but also the I would assume their, um, you know, staff. Right. I, don't, I don't know. Maybe that was just themselves on their own. But we do need folks that are tech savvy to right. uh, be in be in place. And and of course we need to be cautious. But 
Um, overall, I think we do need an adjustment in terms of our view of regulation and how it's important not to um, let the market run unfettered. You know, take a look at how many trees are in Haiti to see if, you know, colonialism really worked out well for them when we just, right. you know, took the gloves off and said, yeah, do whatever you want, guys. Um, you know, obviously it's different context, but in general, I think uh, regulation has a very important role to play in making sure that uh, folks stay on, on, on in, within the, the boundaries of the guardrails. Um, and we're not going to, you know, probably go off on this right now, but I think it's Elizabeth Warren, right? Who's proposed these yep. things about breaking up companies and, and things. And I think that's, that's definitely an outlier kind of proposal and, and probably not thought through, well, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure it's been thought through a lot to be able to be a presidential candidate and, and put something forward like that. But it's going to be interesting to see the conversations that we have around regulation. And, uh, you know, it's it's there's it's multi sided. Right. It's not just that the companies don't want to respond. It's also that they are having an incredibly difficult time uh, responding, um, not just on the privacy side, but when we talk about, you know, the ways in which information and social media is being weaponized. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty eye opening to see how challenging and, and, and maybe even intractable some of these, these, these issues and challenges are. If you allow for things like, Hey, anybody can live stream at any time. Hey, anybody who wants to can, you know, upload even with a bot as many, you know, videos, uh, videos that they want, et cetera. Right. Well, and you mentioned the, the, uh, legislators not getting it when they were first calling uh, Zuck into Capitol Hill to kind of answer for the Cambridge Analytica stuff. But, you know, some of those questions that they were asking uh, Mr. Zuckerberg were, uh, you know, just showed that that we don't they don't have a lot of uh, um, don't have a lot of savvy there. Right. Like when they the famous one was, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Zuckerberg, Senator, Mr. Zuckerberg, how does Facebook make money? And there was this weird silence because, you know, it's that one should be obvious. And he said, Senator, uh, we advertise, right? Because that's we collect ad revenue because that's how the modern Internet runs, as it turns out. And, um, you know, like I uh, and that's that's part of what complicates ed tech, too. Right. Like the free stuff that you know, teachers love free stuff. Just go to a conference and see them stealing pens and, and stickers and. Uh, stress balls from vendors, right? Taking home bags of them because teachers love free stuff. And the internet has been built off this model of free, but free has to come from somewhere, right? Free has to be paid for somehow. And advertising does that. And I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying that's how the, the, the net, these networks have developed. And so I agree, Wes, tech savvy legislators is really a key part of making sure that we regulate appropriately without kind of killing the infrastructure that we've built to this point. Well, we are approaching the top of the hour. We got started a little bit later, so we will go a little bit after the top of the hour, if uh, if that's all right with you, Jason. Uh, yep. What would be – oh, I'll throw this one out. Uh, this is from – I hadn't heard of this website before, which, of course, this is part of media literacy, right? Where is this coming from? Is there a link in this, you know, social media tweet, whatever? Um, it was referred to – actually, there's a newsletter because I've, I'm a registered drone owner, not that I have actually used our inherited drone at school, but – uh, this was this website is called Foxtrot Alpha, and the headline is Russia's shotgun wielding drone is the flying nightmare you didn't know you had. And this was from March 29th, 2019. So, yes, they have a YouTube video of it, and it uh, basically has a shotgun that has been mounted onto uh, a fixed wing drone aircraft. And um, I forget how many it says that, you know, 12 gauge shotgun barrel uh magazine of 10 yeah 10 shells and so it uh the company has a slogan um so what was the slogan it's something about like if it flies it dies um i think that's what it is actually so yeah the unnamed drone seems to continue the company's if it flies it dies theme instead of a regular aerodynamically shaped nose like pretty much every other drone it has a 12 inch 12 gauge shotgun barrel so jason not to conflate you with some you know, Montana extremists, but I know the Unabomber at one time called called your state home. Uh, do you think we'll uh, be seeing any of these flying around the, the United States? And perhaps maybe this is why there have been discussions about drone regulation and everyone who is a drone owner is, you know, supposed to register with the, the FAA. Um, I do not 
expect this to be a real dominant part of the model, right? Because I think the the crackdown that would come afterwards would be pretty extraordinary. But, you know, in the same way that, that futuristic views uh, that the people will sometimes uh, 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 purport for the future have a lot of drones flying around, right? Remember Amazon, UPS, FedEx are all experimenting with this notion of, you know, a truck that, that gets parked in your neighborhood in the morning and a drone that does all the individual deliveries all day long to your doorstep, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those are all part of, of what could be happening um, uh, coming to a doorstep near you um, in the relatively near future. But, you know, it's just part of, you know, I, I don't see that being really as any different than, than, than mounting a rifle on a, a car or truck. Other than, you know, the driver may be you know, literally a, a world away. That's a little dystopian to me, but I mean, it does, I, I think it does highlight how, you know, I know there was a lot of hand wringing after the, the movement to regulate drones uh, because of the kind of bad acting that had happened with crowds, um, with uh, interfering with uh, law enforcement and with emergency services. Um, during things like fires, uh, there have been a couple of drones that have done some naughty things with um, uh, major international airports, in some cases shutting down airports for hours at a time. The drone got in, in the way of, of air traffic. I think it's part of the natural uh, evolution of when these new technologies become available. We have to you know, regulate to make sure that they are used appropriately and aim our um, actions of bad actors. A couple more quick hits for articles before we do Geeks of the Week. Sure. Um, a couple of quick Microsoft ones. Um, if you are a Microsoft Windows 10 user and you um, have automatic updates set up, uh, you should act now according to ZDNet to make sure that the um, uh, spring um, update is delayed if you do not want it, if you're a production machine. And this is especially true if you're a home user. Uh, there are lots of... of, of uh, tweaks that network users can can do to stop or delay um, Windows from, from updating to the latest uh, big version number if you are a Windows 10 administrator. But if you're a personal user, they are uh, uh, really scaling back the number of folks that are going to initially roll out the new version of Windows 10.2. And in fact, I think for the first several weeks, you have to go and actually download the update. It's not even automatic. You have to take an action yourself to do that. I know I will do that personally because I um, do end up uh, taking those updates uh, uh, because the, my Windows machine is really not my main machine. Uh, I'm mostly on a Chromebook uh, uh, as a, a rule of thumb, so I will take that update. But if you are a personal user, especially if you ran into the issues with the um, uh, the update in October 2018, I'd strongly suggest that you you know stop that from 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 updating. I believe you can delay it for for many 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 weeks after its, its availability. And I think it's I think it's thirty days. That, three um, days. I mean, we can we use deep freeze, and yeah. so we can just yeah freeze our machines. But I think thirty days is what it has been, unless they've changed it. So, so yeah, definitely uh, consider doing that. And then one other interesting note: uh, we had mentioned previously on the podcast that uh, uh, Microsoft Edge is moving towards the Chromium base, the open source Chromium base. And there's been a lot of interesting articles amongst the Uber nerds in the last two or three weeks about early betas of the Chromium-based version. And there's a great article that talks about uh, some of the early uh, early features. Uh, Petri on March 26th talks a little bit about uh, enterprise features that will appear in Edge that are not part of the current Edge code base that is Microsoft uh, created as opposed to Chromium-based created. Probably the most interesting thing for me personally is that if, and again, I'm a minority Windows user, right? It's it's a part of my workflow, not the predominant platform I'm on. But one of the things that always was a little hard about Edge is that I love having multiple profiles in a browser. It's why I love Chrome so much, because I can have a work profile and a home profile and a um, NCCE profile and all my projects can have their own Chrome profile so I can have my browser set up the way I want it to sign into the sites I want to be signed into for my various projects. And they're bringing that to what well, appears to be bringing that to the Edge browser. So you can be in the Edge browser and say, this is my personal Microsoft account. Now I can go to a different version of the browser that is my work Microsoft account. And for those of you steeped in the Microsoft universe, that's something that I think Chrome has really, really been kicking edges, edges pants on because uh, the, the frank answer is is that you know you need you need a work uh, uh, browser I think and you need a home browser. There are different things, different ways you might want to set that up, different plugins you might want to use. So I'm very encouraged by that. 
And my last little quick article is about the hydrogen economy. I had a chance to visit our son this last weekend and on Monday out in Colorado where he's a junior at the Colorado School of Mines. And in fact, he gave me one of my geeks of the week tonight. But uh, one of his roommates is a chemistry major and he's doing some research as an intern this summer on storing hydrogen and empowering the hydrogen economy. So I uh, kind of had my uh, eyes or ears pick, perk up a little bit of this Forbes article from April 2nd. Get ready for 1.5 cent renewable energy, Stephen Chu says, which could unleash the hydrogen economy. And there has been some... Um, there have been some articles I've just seen recently about, you know, worldwide, the percentage of, uh, of energy that's now produced by renewables and uh, amidst the more dystopian and negative things that we might be sharing and talking about here when it comes to security and hacks and those sorts of things. Here's a very positive article about renewable energy in that future. And if you don't know Stephen Chu, he was the former uh, secretary of uh, energy for the United States. He was a, the 19, a 1997 Nobel Prize winner in physics. He's the new president of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. So anyway, I will look forward to that. I think hydrogen is a little bit dangerous, but hopefully they will figure out how to work that out. I'm sure that Alexander's roommate is going to get that all solved this summer in Golden, Colorado for us. So any geeks of the week t- this week for you, Jason? Yeah, I'll just share a quick one. I thought I mentioned this before, um, and then I looked at our past show notes. I don't think I have. Google has a, and I'm going to put this in quotation marks, a free VPN solution um, that is actually not aimed at, at end users like us, but rather at journalists trying to uh, tunnel uh, it securely into like a home base to send articles and things that may be sniffed out by nefarious actors, but the VPN is called Outline, and uh, Outline um, is an open source piece of software that you can download on Windows, Mac, um, or Linux machine, and then utilize a cloud-based service. So I use DigitalOcean, which is a popular cloud provider, and I pay $5 a month for a terabyte of transfer. And for those of you that have not... Uh, heard us uh, uh, talk about how amazing VPNs are. What VPN essentially does is takes all your internet traffic, no matter where you're located, and it puts a kind of a, 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 a barrier around it so that it can't be sniffed out. So right now, if you go to public Wi-Fi, a lot of that is protected because uh, uh, of SSL certificates and SSL security. So it's not like your data is out in the open but plenty of, of data can be sniffed out in open internet connections if, if, if things that are maybe not like your credit card numbers, but other things that are otherwise uh, useful pieces of information for tracking you. What a VPN does is essentially says, um, you know, for someone that's, that's monitoring your internet, which could include your ISP, it could include your employer, it could include anyone who may be controlling your internet connection, it simply says, instead of showing you where you're going or where you're accessing, instead just says you're accessing the VPN. Right. It just shows that IP address for all the traffic. And so it's easy to set up. Um, I, again, am a little bit nerdy, so it, 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 it was a familiar piece to me. But um, I, I now have a couple of VPN services that I use. But Outline VPN is a pretty easy five dollar a month solution that requires just a little bit of tech savvy to get going. And I will say it's also the VPN solution that we're going to be using for our teachers that have to use public Wi-Fi. Um, we're going to uh, create a couple of, of uh, or actually we're going to create one master um, outline VPN account and then share that with a handful of teachers that we know have to use public Wi-Fi as a, a component of their grading. And we want to secure that student data um, when they're um, online and accessing um, uh, resources through my work. So getoutline.org is the website and it's fun to set up and an interesting uh, tool to use. Awesome. And shout out to Scott Summer, who uh, in the chat room says that Cloudflare just released a free VPN service, and I will drop a link of that into the show notes. Uh, I will go fast because I'm overdoing it as I often do with my Geeks of the Week. I got four. Uh, Alan Levine, Cogdog, you know, follow him on Twitter. What are you doing? What you been doing with your time? Um, he has a new, uh, I don't know actually how new it is, but it is to me, uh, daily create, he used to daily create basically, and they had a daily create for DS106. Am I get that right? Um, anyway, the the uh, digital storytelling um, cl- class that he was you know helping with for years. This is called the Daily Digital Alchemy: One Creative Spell Per Day. And so there's a challenge. You could submit it, and you tweet it with a hashtag, and you can see what everybody else is doing. And there's leaderboards and all this incredibly awesome, cool stuff. So yeah, again, that's like 
one of the most positive links I will share in our show today. Second thing, um, when I was walking around at Colorado School of Mines, having our son give me a little tour on Monday morning, I saw some really excellent posters, and turns out these are free. And so they're from SANS, and I've got the link there to free security awareness posters. And you could print these, print them in color, put them up in your organization, you know, share them on digital signage. Uh, one of the ones that I saw there talked about you being the target and just how important it is to secure the human, right? The human being is oftentimes the weak link when it comes to security issues. And whether or not you are an IT and IT director, I mean, it doesn't matter, you know, all of us can have a responsibility and play a role in helping educate those around us in our family, our friends, those with which we have contact. And so, you know, security is important. Um, the best video, oh my gosh, I've seen in months is this one. It's called Manipulating the YouTube Algorithm. It's part one of three of Smarter Every Day. And that's the YouTube channel that Destin runs. This is incredible stuff. I'm going to be doing a workshop in two weeks called... Uh, filtering the exaflood strategies for information and media literacy. And I'm probably going to use either this video or another one by, by Dustin or Destin, Dustin, I think Dustin, um, that really just, he interviews folks, he has interviewed folks at YouTube and Facebook, talks about math and how they're trying to solve these really challenging things. Like, you know, how do we prevent you know, a terrorist uh, shooter in New Zealand from from having thousands of copies of videos uploaded. And obviously that was not the person who was uploading those thousands of videos, but it's just so challenging in the ways in which uh, both Twitter and Facebook along with YouTube are being weaponized and they drive mainstream media and, and really the almost intractability of these issues fantastic. And if you, by the way, know of any other videos similar to this, talking about uh, the digital literacy skills, uh, point me in that direction. He talks about, I think, the Pointer Institute. Um, I'll, I'll share in next week's show. I'll have a, an updated Google Doc with resources. But anyway, I'm excited about that Atlas workshop, and I think it's really critical that we look at media literacy and filtering strategies and, you know, the ways in which, you know, we take responsibility for the things that we both consume and choose to believe. Uh, and then also the things that we choose to share. And then lastly, because of Smarter Every Day, and I don't know if you have this experience, but, you know, when I, before I follow someone, I take a look at their feed. And for instance, if there's profanity or, or whatever, I mean, I, sometimes you'll be judged by the company you keep. So, um, you know, there, there are things that are, are red flags for me uh, that I usually don't follow. But anyway, I'll check things out. Sometimes I'll retweet or like things. That's how I found this post. Andreas Gall currently works for Apple. He's not writing as an Apple employee, but his Medium post is called No One Should Have to Travel in Fear. And he has filed a lawsuit with the help of the EFF because of what Homeland Security did and stopping him, trying to force him to open up his laptop and his iPhone uh, and, and give them access. And he had never had any trouble before. They actually took away his global access you know, status uh, during this process. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens with that court case. But we have talked on the show before about travel, about what you might want to have or not have on your smartphone, the importance of, um, you know, having encryption available and perhaps, you know, thinking carefully, you know, maybe you want to travel with a Chromebook. Maybe you want to, um, you know, if you have your device wiped, obviously that may be a flag for somebody. Um, maybe you want to travel with, uh, you know, I'm not saying a burner phone and I'm not saying we have to be paranoid, but I am saying that if your stuff, uh, you know, gets, let's say your smartphone data all gets sucked into you know, not just the United States, but any customs, um, you know, or, or Homeland Security, security organization in whatever country you happen to travel to, all that information is then, you know, hackable by somebody. And these are things to consider. So that is way too much for a geek of the week. But you know what? We're uh, we, we don't get paid any more or any less for sharing more or less Geeks of the Week. So, Jason, what is this thing here, and where can people find you if they would like to, you know, drink from the font of digital knowledge that you are frequently sharing? Well, this whole thing here is the EdTech Situation Room, and we are a podcast uh, once a week, usually at 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Central, 300, 400, 3, 4 UTC, um, where we talk about links every week uh, and news that's in, in the uh, uh, tech world and talk about through an educational lens. But me personally, 
I'm on Twitter at Tech Savvy Teach. Um, I uh, work with the Northwest Council for Computer Education, blog.ncc.org. Um, I'm also the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the fabulous University of Montana campus. And actually, I we're about ready to move in brand new offices as part of a building expansion at the Phyllis J. Washington College of Education and Human Sciences. I, I'm looking forward to showing off that beautiful space uh, once we move down here down there in a couple of weeks. Um, we are at MontanaDigitalAcademy.org, or if you want to follow us on Twitter, which is mostly just announcements from me um, uh, about you know technical issues or opening, closing of semesters and enrollment, MontDigiCAD is, is our Twitter uh, feed there. Wes, what about you? I am W. Fryer on Twitter. Speedofcreativity.org is my blog. And as I mentioned here in a couple of weeks, I'm very excited to get to go to the Atlas Conference, which is uh, educational technology and technology leaders in independent schools conference that is down in Dallas, Texas. And I will be, I'm sure, tweeting a lot from that conference. And um, I probably will be sharing a few blog posts, although generally I share my learning from conferences now on Twitter and then sometimes we'll create a Twitter moment. I don't know if you've made one of those, but it's like like Storify, but it's built into Twitter. And so you can archive a bunch of tweets. And anyway, that's where I'm sharing. So we want to thank both Scott and Peggy for joining us live. We want to thank you for tuning in. Please let us know if you listen to the show. You can always reach out to our show Twitter channel at EdTechSR and follow us there. That's where we will tweet a live show link if, uh, you know, <laughs> we're able to. It, it used to auto-tweet, and actually YouTube changed that API setting with Twitter integration, so we have to manually do that. But as I think Peggy and Scott did, you can go to our Twitter channel. You can find all the great links at EdTechSR.com to include our show notes, and we want to encourage you to stay savvy and stay safe. Have a great week, everybody. And we hope that the spring is going to be safe and tornado-free for you. We are crossing our fingers here in central Oklahoma about that.